0: But this show will continue to help you understand the things that affect your health while looking
1: for unexpected discoveries along the way. It will also explore thought-provoking ideas and questions like this one. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here A common
0: question that people ask when confronted with a diagnosis is, how did I get this disease? Rarely is the answer definitive, but often leads to a recitation of a list of possible risk factors that could be at play, none of them absolute and often just unknown. So it is with Parkinson's disease. Although several genes, or genetic variants, are known to be associated with a small proportion of Parkinson's cases, they are not seen to play a role for most individuals. But the thing that most people around the world are exposed to is environmental pollutants, many of which can be toxic to various biological systems, including our own nervous systems. When I spoke with Dr. Samuel Goldman of the University of California, San Francisco, he explained some of the evidence linking environmental toxins to a risk for Parkinson's and why it's not so easy to study them. We do hear so much about the influence of genetics in Parkinson's disease, but are environmental factors overlooked and what role do they play, do you think?
2: Well, I think we hear a lot about genetic factors because they're very discreet. We've got the technology that can measure the genetics that might potentially be involved in Parkinson's disease. And we do know that there are a handful of inherited variants that can cause Parkinson's disease. But the so-called highly penetrant variants, so those that if you have a genetic variant, it almost always results in Parkinson's disease, those are extremely rare. The less penetrant variants, such as the LARC-2 variant, that is present in about 1% of persons with Parkinson's disease and is inherited, that is only about 30% penetrant, meaning that people who have the variant in that gene, only 30% of them will develop Parkinson's disease. So that clearly demonstrates that other factors are at play. And then there are lots of other sort of lines of evidence that implicate environmental factors. One in particular is the study of twins. Here is a quick word from our sponsor.
1: We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows. Enjoy the show.
2: Our group conducted a study of twins that started back in the 1990s, where we looked for Parkinson's disease in 32,000 twin pairs who'd been followed since World War II. And we tried to identify pairs where either brother, either twin, had Parkinson's disease, and then we looked to see if the other twin had Parkinson's disease. This is called concordance when both brothers have Parkinson's. And we compared the concordance in identical twins versus non-identical twins, fraternal twins. And we found that the concordance when both brothers had Parkinson's was very similar whether the twins were identical or not identical. And that is really strong evidence that genetics are not the predominant factor in Parkinson's risk. And then I guess the third line of evidence would be hearkening back to the discovery of a toxin Bill Langston recognized back in the mid-1980s of a group of intravenous drug users in Silicon Valley, all of whom acutely developed a syndrome of Parkinsonism that looked identical to Parkinson's disease. And he identified the chemical to be MPTP, abbreviation for a very long chemical, and That was sort of a very strong clue that environment could cause Parkinsonism and possibly Parkinson's disease. And so that spurred a whole new search for similar compounds to MPTP in the environment that might potentially be causing Parkinson's.
0: Not many people run into MPTP fortunately. So what sort of things in the everyday environment do you think may be contributing?
2: Absolutely. MPTP, it turns out, is also a very interesting compound for generating an animal model of Parkinson's disease. The MPTP is very specific for injuring the cells in the substantia nigra, dopaminergic neurons, the same cells that degenerate in Parkinson's disease. So the mechanism of the toxicity of MPTP was worked out, and it involves injuring mitochondria, and they're the energy factory for the body and for the brain. And so the search kind of went in several directions. One was to look for compounds that were structurally similar to MPTP. And another approach was to look for compounds that were mechanistically similar to MPTP. And I should also point out MPTP wasn't the only environmental factor that had already been linked to Parkinson's disease back in the 80s. We knew even before then that persons who lived in rural environments or who lived on farms seemed to be at a higher risk for Parkinson's disease. So there was already a suspicion around certain pesticides.
0: What about solvents? They've been implicated also, whether from dry cleaning fluids to degreasers to all sorts of stuff in the environment that maybe people are exposed to in small amounts, but they might add up.
2: The observation that solvents might be increasing the risk of Parkinson's disease is a really interesting story, and it also highlights one of the major problems with studying environmental risk factors for Parkinson's, and that is It's really hard to measure exposures. And that's another reason why the focus has been on genetics, because it's really easy to measure genetics, at least genetic sequence variants. Environment is hard to measure, especially environment from long ago. So most people don't know whether they were exposed to pesticides, and if so, which pesticides. And similarly with solvents, it may even be more difficult. Solvents are throughout our environments, and very few of us know whether we've been exposed to solvents and when. So the observation that the dry cleaning solvents or related solvents might be related to causing Parkinson's disease, there were several case reports back in the 1960s and 70s that saw individuals with Parkinson's disease who'd been exposed to large amounts of common cleaning and degreasing solvent called trichloroethylene, or TCE. And TCE, it turns out, was also used in dry cleaning back in the 1950s and 60s. And then that compound was replaced by tetrachloroethylene, which is a very similar compound structurally, called PERC, or perchloroethylene. So the story became more interesting back, I believe it was around 2008, when a group in Kentucky reported a cluster of people with Parkinson's disease, all of whom had worked in the same small manufacturing plant, and all of whom worked directly or in very close proximity with this solvent trichloroethylene, TCE. And people who didn't have Parkinson's disease who worked in that area, that small manufacturing area, many of them had subtle signs of Parkinsonism, so motor slowing. And that observation spurred us to look at possible association with occupational TCE exposure in our twin study that I mentioned earlier. And so we estimated which twins had been exposed to TCE occupationally. And then we looked to see whether they were at a greater risk of Parkinson's disease. And we found that they were at a, approximately a six-fold increased risk of Parkinson's. And people exposed to the other related dry cleaning solvent, PERC, were at about an 11-fold increased risk of Parkinson's disease. And since then, TCE has been also shown to produce a very compelling animal model of Parkinson's disease that's specific for the dopaminergic neurons in the substantia nigra and is able to cause certain motor features that are reminiscent of Parkinsonism
0: as well. Do you think there's an interaction of the genetics and the environmental factors, whether the genes that have already been identified as having some influence on the risk of Parkinson's, or even genes that control drug metabolism and metabolism in the liver or in the body for getting rid of nasty chemicals you pick up?
2: Yeah, well, that's a great question. And I think most researchers in the field strongly agree, even though we may disagree on the relative impact of genes and environment, Most researchers agree that interaction, so-called gene-environment interaction, is responsible for the vast majority of Parkinson's disease. And basically, that means that people who have a certain genetic makeup may be more or less susceptible to a particular environmental exposure. There hasn't been a lot of study of this gene-environment interaction, again, primarily because it's very difficult to study. There have been a few. Some of the most noteworthy look at pesticides and specific genes, as you mentioned, genes related to metabolism of the pesticide, absorption, breakdown of the pesticide, and also the ability of the pesticide to get into the brain. So genes that would affect that. And there have been some really striking associations. One in particular that we looked at studied the interaction between exposure to the herbicide paraquat and the deletion of a particular gene that's involved in antioxidant defense systems. And that gene is extremely commonly deleted. About 20% of the population doesn't make any of that gene. And what we found that persons who were exposed to both Paraquat and this gene, gstt one were at an 11-fold increased risk of Parkinson's, whereas those who just had the genetic variant or those who were just exposed to Paraquat without the variant, were actually not at increased risk.
0: Most of us don't know, can't know our genetics. Even if we get a test, that's only a small sampling of what genes we have. And even if we did know what they were, we can't change them. So what can people do now to improve their personal environments, reduce risk of later Parkinson's,
2: I think what we can do now is to try to live as healthfully as possible. That would mean doing the things that you would do for your health anyway. So, eating well, eating organic fruits and vegetables whenever possible, because we do think that pesticides increase the risk of Parkinson's. Physical activity, regular physical activity throughout your life, it protects against heart disease and diabetes and it probably also protects against parkinson's disease and there are a number of studies that show that physical activity is likely to slow parkinson's progression
0: as well these are all things that are heart healthy and people have said especially neurologists have said what's good for the heart is good for the head so it sounds like exercise and eating well and reducing cholesterol and increasing foods with antioxidants is a good thing I've also heard that head injury can lead to dementia, and small head injuries can come from the inside, microbleeds and things like that. So it sounds like doing things that help your vessels in general may be a good thing for your head. I think that's absolutely true. There has
2: been fairly consistent literature looking at the risk of Parkinson's associated with head injury, and even very mild head injuries have been linked to an increased risk of Parkinson's. And your point about diet, the Mediterranean diet has been associated in some studies with a reduced risk of Parkinson's. So absolutely, heart healthy lifestyle is likely to also be a brain healthy lifestyle. Here is a quick word from our sponsor.
1: We take this few seconds off to inform you our valued loyal listener about the best health and fitness podcast shows enjoy the show.
0: We also happen to have an agency within the government called the Environmental Protection Agency. On a population basis, is there something that the EPA or other regulatory agencies may be able to do about environmental risks?
2: Absolutely. The EPA last year passed a ruling that they couldn't use basic science research to make decisions about regulation affecting human health. And that has been rescinded. And so now we can actually use the totality of the basic and epidemiologic research to make regulatory decisions. I think the EPA should move forward with regulation of certain pesticides for which there is very solid data linking their usage to an increased risk of Parkinson's, as well for the solvent trichloroethylene. These are just a couple of examples, but I think that there has to be much more funding for environmental research that can actually inform policy in an
0: intelligent manner. What we've been talking about are all essentially preventive measures, but for people who already have Parkinson's. Do you think these things also apply in terms of severity of disease or progression that they may have an effect? I assume there's not a lot of solid research on that yet, or am I wrong? There's
2: not a lot of research on interventions to slow disease progression. There are a handful of studies suggesting that anti-inflammatory medications might be protective though the the evidence is still not consistent enough to recommend that as an intervention. But it certainly makes sense that we would want to minimize exposure to substances that have been linked to increased risk. Every reason to suspect that the mechanisms related to disease onset are also related to progression. So eating healthfully, getting a lot of regular physical activity. Just living a healthful lifestyle is likely to slow disease progression.
0: What about clusters of incidence of Parkinson's, as in other things? They seem to be rich epidemiologic grounds there. Sure. Clusters, which basically just
2: means that we see more incidence of Parkinson's disease over, in a geographic location or over time, we see more cases than we would expect. And clusters are good evidence of environmental impact on risk because people in a place or in a short time period would, would share exposures. And we really haven't identified very many clusters to this point. There was the small cluster I mentioned uh, in Kentucky. There have been some clusters in Canada and here or there. And I think the main reason that we haven't observed clusters other than not looking for them is that, again, I mentioned that we don't know when the critical exposure occurs. So if the exposure was 20 years ago, It's gonna be very difficult for us to recognize that cluster 20 years later when people start developing Parkinson's disease. But I think the main reason is that we haven't looked. And there is a new Parkinson's disease registry in California, and there's an effort to establish a national registry, and that is going to make it much, much easier to search for clusters geographically. So if people share a residential location where there was killer exposure, for example, to dry cleaning solvents, we'll be able to identify that using uh, Parkinson's disease registries. So I hope we will be able to identify these clusters going forward, because that'll give us much more information on possible environmental causes.
0: I suppose if you don't only look at clusters as a geographic phenomenon, but as an occupational phenomenon, then you've already identified farm workers and people using solvents and things like that. So they do cluster in that sense. Absolutely.
2: Occupational clusters are very informative, though, again, there have been... Very few of them reported. But occupational exposures can often be much more intense than non occupational exposures. So it can be a very powerful
0: study to look within occupational subgroups. And even with that, I guess it's kind of hard to look for a dose effect. It's probably tough to know over what period the cumulative effect and any acute ones and things like that with so many of these things.
2: Absolutely. And for example, in the dry cleaning industry, most of the high exposures actually occurred in the people who lived above mom and pop dry cleaning establishments. And furthermore, people who tended to work at small dry cleaning establishments don't work there for very long. They're dispersed. And so a cluster among those workers would be very difficult to identify.
0: Yeah. And as you said, in a diary study, remember what was going on 20 years before.
2: Absolutely. And that is making the case for why we need life course cohorts. We need research cohorts that are developed at birth, ideally, and individuals are followed throughout their lifespans with regular exposure assessments and histories taken throughout their lifespans. That is the ideal way to get at this issue. Of course, that takes 60 years to establish.
0: Can any of the cardiac studies, Framingham or the one outside of uh, San Diego. I mean, Framingham has followed like four or five generations already. I would think there would be medical histories in there all along.
2: There are a lot of these cohorts that were established for other purposes. The Nurses' Health Study, there's Framingham that you mentioned, there's the Honolulu Asia Aging Study. There are a number of cohorts. They were predominantly established to look at cardiovascular risk factors.